This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My co-host Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, we mine the PW Radio archives for an interview with powerhouse comics creator Gilbert Hernandez. Then PW editorial director Jim Milliot looks back on 200 years of HarperCollins publishing. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan, and here to help me out is Features Editor Carolyn Juris. Hi, Carolyn. Hey, Rose. Very nice to have you back. It's been a while. It has. Um, So tell us a little bit about what's happening on the nonfiction bestseller list this week. Well, we have a big debut on nonfiction this week. It's actually the number one book in the country as well as in nonfiction. Mm. And it may not sound like a nonfiction book at first. It is The Legend of Zelda, Art and Artifacts. It's an art book about the, all of the artwork in the video game, which I believe is a Nintendo game that started in 1986. That sounds about right, because I, I remember playing it when I was a kid. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the right vintage there. And um, there's still kids today who are very into it as well as adults. Yeah, that's right. And it's, um, that book sold uh, more than 29,000 copies this week. There are actually two editions of it on the list there's uh, at number 20, there's a limited edition hardcover that retails for uh, $80. Wow. So more than 4,000 copies of that. That's, uh, that's pretty good. And then the regular hardcover edition that sells for $40 is up there at the top of the list. Right at the top of the list. And um, I was speaking with Calvin Reed, who, of course, manages our comics coverage. And he told me this is actually a pretty big area for Dark Horse, who does, who is a big comics book publisher. They do these beautiful hardcover art books that really focus on video games. Mm-hmm. So big seller for them. Uh, so that is our number one book. Then at number six, there is Homo Deus by Uval Noah Harari. We reviewed that book favorably. And so this book, I'm sorry, is uh, subtitled A Brief History of Tomorrow. Harari had a big hit maybe a year ago with a book called Sapiens, which was a history of humankind. Mm-hmm. And I remember that book hitting our list. This one, you might be able to guess if you know some Latin, Homo Deus, uh, A Brief History of Tomorrow is about you know, the future of mankind and where we might be headed. Uh, our review says, it's actually, it's a bit mixed. Uh, Harari paints with a very broad brush throughout, but he raises stimulating questions about the past and the future. Interesting. So that sounds like one for all the uh, post-humanists out there, everybody who's waiting for the singularity. Exactly. Uh, He actually uh, talks about a dystopian world in which humanism has given way to dataism. So I think you're right on the money with that. Interesting. At number 10, we have a book called Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, This one, and what I love about nonfiction is sometimes it tells you everything you need to know in the subtitle. Uh, This one is subtitled, How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists are Revolutionizing the Way We Live and Work. Uh, We don't have a review for this one, but we uh, just the book description goes on to explain uh, that the authors, uh, Jamie Wheel, the second author, is a high-performance expert, apparently. Okay. 
and he and Kotler spent four years investigating the leading edges of uh, just kind of the revolution in performance from the home of SEAL Team 6 to the Googleplex, the Burning Man Festival, Richard Branch, Branson's Necker Island, Red Bull's Training Center. So this whole wide range of things. Oh, and the, uh, the UN headquarters. Interesting. So they take in a pretty broad swath of the humanity there and I guess see who the really high performers are and why they perform so well. Uh, and then uh, the last book... Number 18, uh, You Are Free by Rebecca Lyons. That's from Zondervan, which is a, a religion house. And uh, she is a Christian writer. There are a lot of these books that I've been seeing these days. You'll actually see some of them on our list right now. Um, women writing for women about mm-hmm. scripture and how it can help them live their lives uh, more fulfillingly. We don't have a review of this. And the description is, is really just quoting scripture, things like, Christ doesn't say you can be or maybe or will be free. He says you are free. And then this book explores how you can do that. The foreword is written by a woman named Anne Voskamp, who is also one of these uh, authors who writes these kind of inspirational, very scripture-based books. Uh, we have another one on the hardcover list. Um, you know, Sarah Young is another one who I'm sure you spoke about when she debuted. Jesus Always, she's mm-hmm. got a whole raft of these books. We've also got Lisa Turkhurst, who uh, her uninvited has been on the paperback list for nine weeks, uh, still at number 10. And um, that, of course, did well. Yeah, we saw a lot of those books coming out around the beginning of the year and the end of last year. There mm-hmm. um, definitely seemed to be a, an upswell in them. So it sounds like a very interesting trend and worth keeping an eye on. Absolutely. Um, one more I want to mention, she's not on the list at the moment, but Jenny Allen just had a book that was on our nonfiction list and she has this gathering of women that something like a million watch live online and it's just wow they're real movements galvanizing about around these people all right well very interesting we'll definitely keep an eye out on the hardcover fiction list uh, we have a new number four which is empire's end it's the third book in the star wars aftermath trilogy um, created by Chuck Wendig, uh, who is a name that will be familiar to uh, many people, both because he's written some science fiction and fantasy novels uh, uh, um, on his own, as well as in the Star Wars franchise, and because he has a very uh, excited online presence, uh, a wonderful writing blog full of profanity. He's, uh, he's quite a character. And uh, these books have been doing very well. It's no surprise to see this one on the list. It's uh, the third in this trilogy that takes place between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. So definitely a great time to be a Star Wars fan. Lots of exciting stuff happening there. Down just below it is Humans Bow Down at number five by James Patterson, writing with Emily Raymond and Jill Dombowski. And uh, this is a book um, that's a little bit of a departure for Patterson. It's a futuristic novel about um, robots winning the war between robots and humans and taking over the world. Uh, But there are last few humans determined to make a a last stand. And the reviews for this so far have not broadly been what I would call positive. We don't have a PW review yet, but I think most of Patterson's readers would rather he stick to thrillers. Is this his first adult science fiction book? Do you know? I couldn't find another one. I know he had the Maximum Ride series for teenagers for quite some time. I don't know because I I haven't seen the book, so um, I couldn't tell you much more about it or how it fits into the Patterson oeuvre. But um, it's definitely uh, not not been a, a smash hit, from what I can tell. 
Um, so uh, below that a bit, at number eight is A Piece of the World by Christina Baker Klein. And um, this is uh, about the painting Christina's World by Andrew Wyeth. Um, she takes this painting and Im- imagines a whole life for uh, the woman it depicts. And uh, we called the novel Intriguing and uh, said that th- throughout the whole story, the author's insightful, evocative prose brings Christina's singular perspective and indomitable spirit to life. Uh, so uh, that's definitely one for uh, both the art fanciers and the literary fiction fans. Uh, and finally, uh, down below it at number 11 is A Conjuring of Light by Victoria Schwab. Uh, I do have a review of this that I've received. We haven't published it yet because the book was embargoed, but a uh, starred review, no surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, we interviewed her on the radio um, a while back, and uh, these books have done extremely well. They're um, set in a uh, setting where our world is just one of several parallel worlds, and there are people moving around among the different Londons, in this hmm. case, um, trying trying to uh, bring artifacts from one to another and smuggle forbidden magic. And of course, there are many tensions between the timelines as people from one have interests in perhaps taking over another. So this is the third book in the Shades of Magic series. I believe it's the last. Um, These have done very, very well for her. Uh, And I'm very pleased to see this one hitting the bestseller list. That's great. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Gilbert Hernandez talks about blending punk and science fiction in his graphic stories. We'll be right back. I'm Donna Freitas, author of The Happiness Effect, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got an interview from our archives with comics creator Gilbert Hernandez. Hi, Gilbert. So glad you could join us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Hello, everybody. So these two books are very different. Let's talk about Bumperheads first. Can you describe it briefly for our listeners? Well, a Bumperhead was uh, difficult to to do, actually. It's basically, uh, the story mostly takes place during the uh, 1970s uh, from with a teenage boy, you know, experiencing being an outsider. Um, it's called Bumperhead because when he was growing up, uh, he has a large forehead, and kids made fun of him. But uh, he, so he sort of becomes very alienated as a teenager, uh, partially because of that, um, but mostly because he's simply an outsider. He likes uh, dif- uh, different kinds of rock music that you know his peers like. He uh, he just doesn't seem to connect. He's he does okay with the ladies, but uh, that falls apart just because he doesn't really know how to relate to them. So uh, it's kind of a downer for some people, but. Uh, some people just like the uh, the details of what it's like to be 16 in 1972. So, in his name is Bobby, and yeah. uh, he's he's kind of seems to be part of this disaffected youth, as you say, in the 1970s music scene. And uh, I know uh, you were involved in in the, uh, or at least you know, uh, uh, a fan of the uh, punk music scene of the same era, uh, maybe a little bit later. Is, is any of this autobiographical, or were there autobiographical elements or parts of your life that inspired the book? Um, actually, all of the above. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very much taken from uh, pretty much just how I felt as a, you know, as a teenager. And, um, and yeah, some of, the, some of the scenes in it and some of the characters in it are, are, are actual people. I, I just changed, you know, names here and there. Um, but a couple of uh, things in there are, well, actually a lot of things in there are pretty close to what, 
you know, what happened to me and what it was like for me to grow up in the 1970s. Um, you know, I, I used real band names, but, um, uh, you know, I don't know. It just, uh, it, it's a hard, hard to, to explain because I do all my work that way. I, I usually take things from real life and then just change them around enough to fit, uh, you know, a storyline. So Bobby seems to go through life kind of not really being affected by much, though he affects others, uh, it seems. So tell us a little bit more about Bobby. Well, Bobby basically has his guard up all the time. He uh, he's just, uh, I guess, because of you know his you know the, being teased as a kid, he he has a, he has a wall up. So whenever good things come to him, he takes them in stride. Um, when bad things happen to him, he takes those in stride. He never he never really commits to what uh, you know what what might be good for him, uh, or you know. Uh, simply, like he has no problem talking to girls and uh, having girlfriends, but he sort of takes it for granted as it's something that's almost not real to him. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that's not like me. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I was very happy to have a girlfriend in high school. Let me tell you. Um, but but um, um, I don't know. He's just sort of he, he's sort of that type of person that keeps everything at an arm's length, just because he won't have to actually deal with, uh, you know, heavy feelings here and there. And then once he's alone and, you know, thinking his lonely, depressing thoughts, he, you know, that's, that's when it hits him hard. So, but in his waking life, uh, he, he keeps things at an arm's distance. So what's it like looking back on this era, which was obviously pretty formative for you, and um, how does the, the historical fiction that you're creating kind of reflect on the present day? Hmm, that's interesting. Are you speaking specifically about Bumperhead? Uh, or you can go further beyond that, however you like. Um, I, boy, I, I, it's, it's difficult for me to gauge. Um, I simply do stories uh, the way I do them because that's the only way I know how to do them. Um, I don't know how to keep up with uh, uh, modern trends or, or, I mean, I, I have to remind myself uh, when the when, uh, character's on the phone that it's a cell phone. Mm-hmm. And it's not a flip phone. <laughs> you know, I have to remind myself little things like that because that's usually stuff I don't. I, I just ignore in present time. Uh, I have to remind everybody, uh, or I remind my readers or myself that um, you know people use computers. People are always on iPads or you know their cell phones or whatever. So I kind of incorporated that into Bumperhead in particular um, as sort of a. Uh, a science fiction element, almost. Sure, I mean, I, from from Bobby's perspective, we're here in the future. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but as far as how, how my work reflects uh, the modern, you know, the modern world or modern comics, I'm I'm not really sure. I pretty, I think I'm just very old school, and I think um, I'm still be able to, you know, put out comics that people read because uh, um, I'm just pretty much. Uh, things are pretty simple for me. Uh, it's just down to earth because that's the only way I know how to do it. So, in your, so moving on to your to the other most recent book, Lover Boys. It's it's set in the it seems to be a Mexican border city, uh, yeah. and it's about a group of young men uh, who who kind of fancy themselves as lover boys, and so it's a very different. 
di- different kind of book, it seems. Uh, and also the illustrations, the way you've illustrated, are both very different. I mean, a completely different narrative theme and uh, illustrations. Um, can you talk about that? Um, well, Lover Boys was just uh, almost like uh, a breath of fresh air or a break after Bumperhead. Mm-hmm. Because when you do something like Bumperhead and it's about, you know, teen angst and that sort of thing, uh, you, you have to kind of feel it to make it real. I mean, uh, I had to go back and think of difficult things that happened, you know, back in the 70s when I was a teenager. Um, and I had to, and then this is where I do it all my work, when I have to go back and do a younger person who's you know, pretty pretty unhappy. I have to go through those feelings as well to to to, to, to figure out you know what what I want to say on the page. So uh, when something like that is done, uh, I went I went with Lover Boys to go a little. Uh, originally, it was actually a little lighter. It's supposed to be a light romance. Uh, it just turns out to be just as grim as everything else. <laughs> <laughs> can't can't get away from it. <laughs> yeah, but it was just a different style, just to make it more of a. Uh, one of my classic styles of telling stories, just a simple story, you know, a simple neighborhood, uh, but with a surreal element, uh, thread um, running through it. So, so tell us about that neighborhood and tell us who these these boys are, the names, what they do. Um, in, in Lover Boys? Yeah, yeah. And how exactly are they Lover Boys? Well, uh, I just like the title and I applied it to guys that aren't Lover Boys. They're a bunch of clueless guys that fancy themselves that, or uh, the main character, Rocky, he, did, he, he is a lover boy. He just happens to show up and women like him. You know, he's just those types of people and uh, that type of a person. But um, I just did it, like I said, um, sort, sort of, I start out a lot of those types of stories, and I, this goes back to my Palomar uh, work in Love and Rockets, where I basically start out uh, coming up with an idea of, a, of first, it's a place. You know, where to set the characters, and it's usually, and I discovered this recently, I wasn't even aware of this, that it comes from basically my neighborhood growing up, mm-hmm. and I built from there. I transmogrified, I changed this, I, I changed, you know, the characters around, this and that, but it usually starts from my point of view as a, as a young person living on the street in Oxnard, California, <laughs> and uh, and then I build it from there, it just moves from there, and that's that's become a pattern for me, but it works for me because... Sometimes the stories, I just I started out that way, and then that element is I drop completely and go with other things that I came up with later. So uh, I confess that when somebody tells me that there's a, a book about a bunch of young men who call themselves lover boys, I assume that there's some kind of homoerotic, at least subtext, if not text. Uh, was, was that intentional? Uh, no, I did. I actually I didn't even think of that. I just <laughs> the old uh, old school. Like I said, I think I, you know my head's still in the 1960s. You know, so I think you know when you say lover boy as a kid. You know, you think of oh a guy that you know thinks he's 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 got away with the women. Mm-hmm. You know, now things. It's true. This is interesting that you mentioned that is because uh, now it's different now. When you certain words mean a different thing now. Uh, lover boys. You know, mm-hmm. immediately it's right. probably about you know. Gay, gay guys, you know, uh, and something I never. Uh, it's it's interesting how things are, are simply different now, because okay, here's an example. This is this has nothing to do with lover boys, but it's a little bit about what, what we're talking about. Is I notice now when uh, young people look at somebody, a classic uh, movie star like say Marilyn Monroe, I often hear them say she looks like a transvestite. 
And I think it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting change because when I was growing up, she just embodied this, uh, you know, uh, uh, this very feminine, woman, mm-hmm. ex- extra feminine, you know. And a lot of movie stars were like that, and they grew up thinking that's that's what that is. And now, with things that have changed so much that women really don't reflect that kind of image anymore, um, it's about being thin and look, looking you know, a different way, and whatever it is, you know, fashion dictates. Uh, young people grow up differently, seeing it differently. They'll look at an old uh, Hollywood movie and say the women look like transvestites. And right. I, that was a little shocking to me. I was mm-hmm. a little surprised. Yeah, that's interesting. It's just how the, how things have changed, and uh, it's just it's a different thing now. So I guess those old movies are, are getting more and more alien to younger audiences, whereas they were the norm to me when I was growing up. Sure. I, on, on the flip side, I, I just watched a 1957 movie um, with uh, uh, Tracy and Hepburn film called Desk Set and to me it was so much more daring and outrageous than anything I would expect Hollywood to come out and the computer nerd is also the incredibly handsome leading man you know you just you just wouldn't see that so uh, I I think stereotypes also shift over time and I guess that the thing that would own the, the thing that would fascinate uh, younger audiences mostly about uh, that movie is how big the damn computer is. Oh, it's huge! <laughs> the, the, the whole the whole first half of the movie is him measuring the room to see if the computer will fit in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty funny. So, um, in in addition to Bumperhead and Lover Boys, you've got four other books out just this year. Uh, you've been a very prolific creator for a very long time. How do you sustain that pace without burning out? Um, uh, basically, I, I've got, I, just, I just have that drive. I think I'm just born with that kind of drive. Um, oh, I do burn out. I do have to slow down here and there because, you know, doing a graphic novel, two, uh, two a year especially, that, that, that'll just knock you out, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I learned to pace myself with uh, doing shorter jobs in between. And mm-hmm. uh, I keep myself busy all the time. Um, I don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, you know, I could just all of a sudden flare out one year and say, hey, I don't have any more graphic novels, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but right now I'm taking advantage of my uh, my what's left of my you know youthful passion mm-hmm. and um speaking of your youth who who were some of your early influences and obviously to start with you're from a family of artists you really got it from day one yeah i got it from day one mom was uh actually a comic book fan back in the 1940s and uh she uh you know she apparently she was very into comic books when she was a kid so uh you know she grew up got married had some kids and so when it was time to you know, distract us, <laughs> basically. She allowed us to read comic books. She thought they were okay, you mm-hmm. know. And luckily, I grew up in the, in the 60s where uh, it was the big boom of um, how modern, you know, the, the beginning of modern comics, you know, especially for Marvel comics and that sort of thing. And then later, the underground comics. So I was at that place where comics were evolving at this rapid and pretty exciting pace uh, at the time. Um, what what was it like being around for that? I mean, was was it really eye opening and inspiring for you as a as an artist and a writer? Yeah, because um, besides uh, besides that, I you know I, I liked movies as well, but uh, comic books uh, it was the norm then. Uh, you'd go to the you know the local you know uh, market, and there was the new the new comic books out, and they were just evolving very rapidly, uh, but. You know, when it, while it's happening, it's the norm. You think that that's how it's going to always be, or it's always been. You know, it's, 
the new Marvel comics, and then they have new artists and new writers and new stories, and then you get the underground comic later on, and then you get you know it just kept it just kept uh, moving along, and uh, once I hit. Uh, hit the mid '70s in my teens, I noticed that things started to drop off. The momentum of the original uh, inspiration for those comics, you know, started to level off, and then, you know, it, it started to change into a different thing. So I lost interest in that uh, in pursuing comic books um, as far as inspiration goes. I was looking more toward films and basically real life. What I was doing with my friends and partying and you know just having a you know, teen adventures, you know, in real life were just was more interesting than what was in comic books. So when I came to com- uh, came to to doing comic books later on, um, I'd already had the history of reading comic books and drawing from them, and copying them, and having you know, you know, trying trying to approximate a comic book, you know, growing up. Um, and then I had the experience of my teenage years and you know, adult years. So I just mixed the two, and that's and my brother as well in Love and Rockets, and that's that's. That's why I'm here. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Gilbert Hernandez, the author of Bumperhead and Lover Boys and a whole lot of other stuff. Um, and you just mentioned working with your brothers on Love and Rockets. What's it like making art with family? That um, that just came naturally. It was sort of uh, okay. I got these comics here, and you've got those comics there, and we'll just put them together because otherwise we'd have to do our you know separate comics, and that's more work. So <laughs> literally, by putting them together, it was just easier to, and quicker to put out. Um, but um, even at a young age, we never collaborated really. I mean, we rarely collaborate now, even if at all. Um, he has his work and writes his and draws his own work, and I write and draw my own work. We just happen to have the same. Uh, influences is why our work sometimes overlaps so tell us about love and rockets uh, how did uh, how did the first one start um and then how 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 did you know there was going to be or did you know it was going to be part of a series oh no we didn't um we kind of you know as growing up as kids reading uh you know, comic books. We 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 stumbled upon fanzines where there was fan comic book fans putting out their own fanzines and their own comic books within these fanzines. And we saw a few of those and noticed that they weren't that polished, but they were kind of fun. And sometimes they came up with you know more things that were more fun than you know that was going on in you know, regular comics. So we kind of just was were going along that. We, we just created our own comics, learned how to do them properly with you know pen and ink and all that kind of stuff. Uh, learned how to letter, did, did all that stuff, but it was pretty basically simple science fiction stuff. That was just what we were into when we were younger. And when it just simply came time to uh, have somebody look at the stuff, because we thought, well, we're getting old now, so we might as well have people look at it. We put it together, uh, spent a little bit of money, put a, our first issue of Lone Rockets together, but we had no clue on how to distribute it or sell it or do anything with it. So we. Uh, you know, we'd go to uh, small conventions and just show it to people. 
and they thought it looked okay. You know, <laughs> for, you know for, for amateurs, they go, yeah, this is all right. Yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. And it was very encouraging, but we still didn't know what to do with it. So we sent it to a couple comic book uh, review publications. One was the Buyer's Guide, the other one was the Comics Journal. And the Comics Journal was known for their very critical view of comic books. Uh, a very uh, scrappy magazine. So we figured, well, we'll send them a copy and maybe they'll review it and people might notice it. It was just sort of a, as sort of, oh, well, you know, shoulders shrugged. And I sent a copy to the Comics Journal and uh, as, time, as luck would have it, um, the publisher, Gary Groff, took a look at it and they were they would just happen to be looking for comics to publish as well as uh, their own magazine. And he said, you want us to publish your comic? I said, sure. That was it. It was that simple. Huh. Uh, you were the right place at the right time. Yeah, and, and the right people. Uh, the, 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 the chemistry is that they very much encouraged uh, us, you know, uh, going our own way. You know, they were very um, adamant about not repeating what the mainstream publishers were already doing with, you know, Batman and Superman and Spider-Man and that kind of thing. They wanted it to go somewhere else. We didn't know what that was, so we just went from issue to issue, mm-hmm. uh, fig- figuring it out. And luckily, we got a you know good uh, immediate response, it, and it was positive about the things, you know, what the readers liked about it. And so we just went, we just went for it. So it was really good timing, I guess. And so, how did you uh, and your brother split up the work? Um, just usually, well, there was three of us in the beginning. And our older brother Mario was just a lot slower and didn't have a, uh, wasn't, wasn't as prolific in, in material as, as we were. Um, so we basically split up the book, uh, I guess, you know, just, um, eventually it just became half and half, you know. Mm-hmm. My brother has half, I have the other. But originally it was, uh, oh, I don't know, it was several pages of my older brother Mario and then Jaime and I would split up the rest. And the the title "Love and Rockets." I know you're you're a, you're a, a music fan, punk fan. Any chance that was might that might have been inspired by the uh, uh, '80s alt band of the same name, the offshoot of Bauhaus? <laughs> well, they appropriated the name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they took the name because actually, uh, com, uh, Watchmen creator Alan Moore um, had a bunch of comics around the house, and he's you know. He's, friends with the, the the band no kidding and they were yeah and uh they Bauhaus had just broken up the singer right. went uh, solo so the rest of the musicians were looking for a new name for their band and he picked love and rockets so they got it from you yeah. Mm-hmm. And, oh, wow. That's great. Um, and you've, you've mentioned other music and science fiction influences. Um, anything that, that made a particularly big impression on you when you were starting to form your own style? Well, uh, early on, when we were, um, even when we were kids, we, we leaned more toward artists that uh, were good at drawing people mm-hmm. in, in the sense, uh, in, in a humanistic way, not... Not just you know a figure drawing, but uh, uh, like a lot of the kid comics uh, were more relatable that way than the superhero comics were. Uh, you could read a bunch of Archie comics, and after a while, you notice that some of the artists were just simply better than others. Yeah. They were just drawing in that you know that house style. But there was a handful of uh, of those creators that simply uh, I don't know connected to kids. You just felt like you were there even if they're drawing in this cartoony style. And that's what we noticed uh, early on, is reading a lot of kids' comics, that they were, that they were very concerned about connecting with, with, with young people uh, and making you feel that you were there. 
and that's that's pretty much what we uh, were what inspired us to, to to go our way with the types of stories we do we just sort of uh uh built our own comics on that on a basically uh you know on, on humanistic drawing <laughs> so um comic book selling has changed a lot the marketplace has changed a lot um since you've been in the business is it hard still doing uh really doing comics in a marketplace that's now very focused on graphic novels it's 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 difficult just because of the workload because graphic novels you know it's it's a lot more work at at one time usually uh most most comics are done serialized you mm-hmm. know you, you do it in chapters and it comes out and then they collect it but once in a while um some crazy artist will come out with a 500 page book and now everybody wants a 500 page book <laughs> not not too many artists are capable of doing that you know most artists are, are best doing uh Doing sprints, doing uh, you know short chapters and and, and 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 books, and then you know they collected. But then somebody got this idea that you know an untrained artist was going to do a you know three hundred page book mm-hmm. in one sitting, and that that just kind of that 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 fell apart pretty quickly, I think, because you don't see a lot of uh, graphic novels straight out with very detailed art. It, uh, if you'll notice, most uh, graphic novels now the art is very simple. Because it's just so difficult to put out a book like that all at once. Mm-hmm. So, um, Rock is different. We're, we're, you know, we have collections, and you know, we do that. And because uh, if you notice, my graphic novels are drawn a lot more simple than my Love and Rocket stories are. Right, that makes sense. Um, and do you have any advice for the aspiring comics creators out there, the the artists and writers who are being inspired by you? Well, if if they're inspired by Love and Rockets and then some of the other books I've done, um, you really have to be yourself and not. You see, this is really difficult because you have to decide how much are you going to do this because you love it, and how much do you want a job? Because if you if you're doing this to be, have a job, then you you'd be better off drawing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you really like comics and you really believe you have something to say, something personal, because I believe. For me, comics are best as personal expression, so that's why I encourage and, and young people who ask me what you know, you know, uh, give, uh, you know, who need advice about making comics. I go, you got to be yourself. And here's the hard part: you got to sit down and learn to draw, and you got to do it all day. <laughs> you got to do it every, almost every day. That's when their faces turn white. <laughs> <laughs> really? Because I, I would think most of them are. I, I would think most of them are, are already kind of sitting down and drawing every day, at least doodling here and there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not saying you know by every day, 24 hours, whatever. I right. just mean if you're going to make comics, you have to put in the time. Now, I'm talking about old school. I'm talking about the way I do it. Mm-hmm. There, there are a lot of young people who do their uh, their stuff on a pad. And that's a whole different thing. I wouldn't know what to say to them other than the content of their stories should be, uh, you know, the self-expression, you know, write about yourself first. And then if it gets too weird about, you know, you feel too weird about writing about yourself and your friends, just do that and change their names. That's all. <laughs> simple, so simple tips like that. So you're still working pen and ink, same, same old, same old. Yeah, just a sheet of paper, pen and ink, uh, pencil and ink, and a straight edge and an eraser. That's it. Did Did you face any barriers being a Mexican American trying to to break into the comics world in the seventies? And do you, Do you think it would be easier now for someone of a similar background? Yeah, 
yeah, it, it's you just simply have to have the chops, really. I mean, it's simple, uh, old school thinking. If you can draw well and you got a story to tell, they don't care what color you are, as long as you got something, you know, they want to look at. Really, because luckily, you know, you know, we're not movie stars here. Just, you know, it's not like what we look like. You know, it's not about that. Mm-hmm. It's just about what what the work is. You know, how the and how the work reads. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing. Well, we've been talking with Gilbert Hernandez, and you can find his book Bumperhead and Lover Boys in stores right now. Thank you so much for joining us, Gilbert. Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope I said something that might help. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about HarperCollins's 200th anniversary. Stay tuned. This is Daniel Jose Older, author of the Bone Street Roomba series and the Shadow Shaper series, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is back to tell us how HarperCollins is celebrating its 200th anniversary. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. It's very nice to have you here. So, 200 years for HarperCollins. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite an achievement, and it was a lot of fun you know, working with them, um, putting together this story. One of the things that was a, a of great uh, assist to us is they have this fantastic uh, website that will be available to the public uh, probably next week when uh, the anniversary celebration really kicks kicks into high gear. And within that uh, website, you, there's all sorts of stuff about all the people that uh, have been part of HarperCollins uh, through the years. Wow, that sounds great. So did you find any unexpected anecdotes about people you know or um, about uh, anything that, that really surprised you? Um, a lot of surprises. Uh, it's just, it's, uh, it's in some ways hard to, uh, hard to take in all that has been involved with these two companies. You know, just to go back a little bit, obviously uh, companies were founded in 1817, but you know, HarperCollins was started as Harper Printers back in 1817 by John and James Harper. And they started in New York. And two years later, over in Glasgow, uh, William Collins set up his company. So it took a while, about until the 1990s, before they merged. But they took their separate paths and then, uh, you know, under under the auspices of News Corp, which is, you know, Rupert Murdoch's company. Murdoch first bought Harper uh, and Rowe, and then a couple of years later he bought William Collins, and then he combined the two. Mm. But I found it, you know, sort of eerie that within two years, you know, 1817 for Harper and 1819 for Collins, that these two companies, you know, got their start. So um, tell us a little bit about the the geography of this. Um, so you said uh, Collins was in Scotland. They were in Scotland and became a U.K. publisher pretty much across all, all subjects. Harper grew up in the U.S. and actually got involved in all sorts of things. They bought uh, Monroe in 1962, I believe, yes, when they merged with a, a textbook company called Rose, Peterson & Company. So 62 was when Harper & Rowe was formed. And then... They kept acquiring. Um, one of their big 
purchases was of uh, J.P. Lippincott in 1978, and that's important because Lippincott was the actual publisher of To Kill a Mockingbird, which you know has been one of the standard titles on um, on the Harper list. So it's it's interesting to see how they've grown, and in particular after Rupert Murdoch bought. Uh, Harper and Collins, and combined it into Harper Collins. Into uh, actually, that year was 1999. How the acquisitions continued. You know, 2011 Harper bought Thomas Nelson. 2014 they bought Harlequin. So the company's been built over a really long stretch of time. I love this. It's it's like um, you know imagining a, a some sort of creature that just attaches more smaller creatures to itself and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So you have this uh, this huge conglomerate now. And where is where is Harper Collins on the the Big Five list? On the Big Five, they're number two, and worldwide they are thirteen. So it's it's been it's been quite a row, and you know, and the website and the, the story we have is you know replete with really funny, or great anecdotes. I mean, they are the publisher of Harper was of Mark Twain, mm. so they talk about how their first association with them. And if some of your listeners are thinking, well, how does Harper and Row or Harper Collins pertain to Harper's Magazine? Well, they did start Harper's Magazine, um, and they sold it off some time ago. But in the early days, Mark Twain's first submission or connection with the Harper was uh, a story he wrote that when he submitted it, they couldn't actually read his name, so it appeared as Mark Swain and not Mark Twain. <laughs> Whoops. Um, but and then, and you know, you talk about what's new is old or that sort of thing. He published a few books with, with Harper, and then he thought he would self-publish. So he tried that for a little while. And when that almost uh, drove him to bankruptcy, he resigned with Harper, and you know, they were his publishers for the rest of his life. So, uh, yeah, a lot of these things do sound very familiar. Not, not actually all that much has changed in publishing over 200 years. No, you know, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of things that you can point to and say, hey, wait, you know. And that's one thing, you know, Brian Murray, who is you know, the CEO uh, of Harper Now, you know, talked about a little bit when we talked to him. It was like, well, you look back and it, it gives you a sense of how resilient book publishing has been. I mean, they've been through a couple of world wars, a couple of depressions, and the book has come through. You know, he talked a little bit about how, you know, Collins was obviously over in the U.K. and what they had to do when the Germans were, were bombing uh, London and other areas. They moved some of their operations to Canada, some to Australia, some out into the hinterlands in the U.K., but, you know, but they kept publishing books. Well, it sounds like a wonderful story, and um, I'm sure there's going to be just an amazing amount of detail, um, both on this website that they're launching and in our article. Did you get to see any um, artifacts from the past 200 years? I, I did, and again, and that's another thing they're very proud of. You know, they moved into their new headquarters down in the financial district, not far from where the old Harper printers uh, started, and they have a lot of artifacts scattered throughout the, uh, the new offices there to uh, to, to remind uh, to remind authors, as uh, Brian Murray likes to say, that this is a company that wasn't born yesterday. Well, I certainly hope they've got another two hundred years in them. I can't even <laughs> imagine uh, what the celebrations would be like in twenty two seventeen. You know, back uh, back one from can only imagine back back when we actually um, still had tangible objects. 
Right, right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Always good to have you on the show, and uh, I'll definitely keep an eye out for that feature. Great. Thanks a lot, Rose. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 